Well, I'm very excited today to be back with the great writer and thinker, Chris Mott, who last year, I believe, published a piece called The Woke Imperium. And we had a great podcast conversation about that a little less than a year ago. We'll link to that in the show notes here. Um, but uh, Chris, why don't you give us a quick rundown of the major highlights of that piece? And then we'll do a kind of check-in and see where things have gone from that time and how things have changed or how things haven't changed since then. Right, yeah. So um, about 11 months ago, uh, I released this uh, white paper for the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy called The Woke Imperium, The Coming uh, Confluence of Social Justice and Neoconservatism. And it's basically an analysis about how uh, the neoconservatives, which uh, I think for many anyone over the age of 25, are often kind of uh, considered to be more of a like conservative Republican thing, have come to uh, more realign, not just with the Democratic Party, but also with the, um, the kind of like social justice tinged activism in general. And not only as a short term process of a kind of political realignment for pro interventionist policies, but also as a, a, a general theme throughout history, like this is not a new thing. This is a thing that has happened many times before. Uh, there are numerous political realignments when a kind of pro imperialist faction, if you will, in, in any given superpower state wants to justify itself without just saying, well, we should be strong, we should be powerful, uh, but really go to pull at people's heartstrings, if you will. Well, um, this is the kind of thing that has reoccurred continuously throughout history, and particularly in, in North Atlantic history, it's particularly strong in like the Anglo-American world. It was a very popular thing at the height of the British Empire. Uh, it was a popular thing under Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Um, it, it, these kind of this kind of rhetoric has been invoked uh, clownishly, even in things like the Vietnam War, when the United States killed a million people to hold on to this kind of rump dying vassal state, um, but said, you know, this is actually for their own good, and you know, we can make a better alternative to you know what the Vietnamese people, well, the majority of them, really wanted. Um, and of course, even you know the the famously chauvinistic Bush administration used a ton of humanitarian rhetoric, particularly after the failure of the WMD excuse um, in Iraq uh, to justify the nation building in Iraq. And then, of course, the Afghanistan operation, which was much more justifiable originally, pivoted towards the nation building operation too, and that became what about the Afghan women and girls? And back in the day, uh, this process was viewed with great cynicism, <laughs> particularly on the left. Um, and then, but over the course of time, I think as a lot of kind of social justice inclined millennials moved into the professional managerial classes and moved into the media, um, I think in particular the media, um, and moved into academia, uh, it, it kind of caused a conflation of these causes with the establishment. And so you've seen not just a political partisanship, but an overall cultural shift of kind of social progressivism getting more and more hawkish. Meanwhile, there's been this kind of formerly hawkish conservatism has become more and more anti-hawkish. I mean, to, to what degree that's sincere, I think is extremely debatable. But um, th this is a uh, this is a general thing. And, and, and there's this overall realignment going on. And I wrote the purpose of the original woke imperium uh study was not just to show this as a historical phenomenon and an ongoing present day one it was also to make the case 
that people of my kind of persuasion in the realism and restraint camp uh, who want less military intervention and less ideological approach to foreign policy and more just kind of a understanding of mutual negotiation and, and kind of transactional politics, uh, regardless of what people's government or type or social system is, um, that the, we had to collectively be on the lookout for this process because this was going to primarily use be used to target us um, when when we were criticizing, say, U.S. intervention in country X or or whatnot, right? Where an allied country doing a similar thing or, or an NGO uh, opening certain types of operations. Uh, if we were to criticize it, this would be the way I was predicting that would be deployed against us. It would it would be this kind of like, well, why do you hate like minority group in this country? Why do you hate it, it, the kind of progressive version of the the old like 2000s more on terror rhetoric when people would say why do you hate freedom like this was very much like the why do you hate freedom uh of the next generation <laughs> and i kind of wanted to also in a future oriented way say like this is coming this is how they're going to critique you uh people in the realism and restraint community particularly say like the quincy institute are getting more and more coverage now and their arguments are being heard by more people and so naturally the, the pushback is going to be higher and the, the pushback in this case is going to be like, oh, you're all a bunch of like uh, right wing fascists and you, uh, you you hate, you know, whatever. And, and that's why you critique these policies. But meanwhile, the, the core underlying factor of these interventionist policies, I would contend, remain the same. And usually, not always, but usually more often than not, they have a negative impact, not just on the United States and its interests, but on the countries targeted by them. Yeah. So uh, that was the, the the short gist of, of the Woking period that we talked last time I was on the plot. Cool. That's good. Yeah, that brings up a few things. I had a kind of jumping off point, but I think I want to redirect a little bit based on what something that you mentioned there several times was this idea of a realignment, Right. And I'm curious about this because I hear about this a lot. That's something that's definitely talked a lot about on podcasts. You definitely make the point like, so I'll give you an anecdote. Um, there was uh, a year after all, there, there was the January 6th Capitol riot thing that happened. And then a year later, the Democratic Party had this big histrionic fest, you know, uh, 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 talking about how it was worse than Pearl Harbor and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> at some point during all that, the, all the Democrats in Congress lined up to come and shake hands and get all buddy buddy with Dick Cheney. Yep. Yeah. And I remember texting my friend at the time that that I discussed a lot of these matters with and stuff. And I said, you know, the transformation is complete now. I've seen this transformation happen. And then I thought about it. And a few hours later, I texted him again and I said, no, this is not a transformation. This is a revelation of really a relationship that was always there but was sort of covered over until then. So to what extent, so I guess part of my question about this realignment, because uh, because I'm wondering is what is happening right now, is it a realignment or is it kind of a disalignment where there's maybe there's kind of things are more in disarray currently? Because what it, it seems to me, so I first became politically active in the early 2000s after 9-11, in the protest movements against the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq and all that kind of thing. And I was living in the Bay area at the time. And I remember attending an anti-war march in San Francisco, I think in February of 2003. And there was something like 75,000 people in the street. There were marches all over the world that were similar. There was a huge anti-war movement. 
And I, and, and it was just, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I thought at the time that, Oh, we're going to have this movement and we're going to stop the invasion of Iraq. Like it happened anyway. And I was kind of like, yeah, of course, you know, they don't listen to us or whatever. But then Obama gets elected and it seemed like the anti-war movement just packed up and went home. Right. Yep. It just kind of went away, you know? And so I thought of this at the time based on that experience. And then not too, too much previous to that, there were all the protests against the World Trade Organization and the Battle of Seattle. So I kind of thought of left politics as being anti-war and anti-globalization and all this kind of stuff. And then it seemed like left politics kind of went away for a while or went underground or fell asleep or something. And then it's resurged in recent years in this really strange form that I think that's unrecognizable to a lot of people. You know, and I've definitely heard explanations that like, Okay, so Occupy Wall Street happened and they had the sort of slogan of the 99% and the 1%. And maybe it they were too over the target in terms of addressing class issues. And so there was a lot of ramping up to shift the focus to race or intersectional LGBTQ issues and things like that and away from class struggle. And maybe that was part of the response or something like that. And then, of course, Trump gets elected and everyone in the establishment's head explodes about what's what's going to happen with that. And so what I wonder is, in like, do you think that there's like a political realignment taking place? Or do you think it's like something that's being uncovered is that there is this sort of layer of the establishment or the technocracy, which inv involves both of these, like the progressive elements on social issues and then the sort of neoconservative issues on militarism and intervention. And in reality, you know, there's sort of that upper level of elite technocrats and they kind of decide everything. They kind of run everything and they call that democracy. And there's and there's enough discontent among everyone else because the establishment, you know, through the politicians, through the media are so failing to really represent the interests of ordinary people and even coherent, just, just even be coherent, you know? And so do you see this as kind of a, some kind of a, a realignment that's starting to happen or is this more kind of just a splitting of, of the sort of technocrat class, which is becoming increasingly isolated and then everybody else, or, I don't, you know, can you, can you maybe like describe that in a little bit more terms? I think there's a bit of all of that uh, involved, uh, and but I would say that the start of the starting assumption we use the term realignment because in like a two party system that's what it looks like, right? It looks like this kind of big pivot. But I would actually make the case that it, the the realignment is partisan only, and there is no real change going on here. What what's really going on is that uh, the as the you know excuses for interventionism get hollower and hollower and people see the results of you know the 20 years of the war on terror and stuff like that mm -hmm. as well as you know quote-unquote humanitarian operations that began in the 90s um i think that it's just that there's a, a constant quest to find who which faction is the better kind of second tier underling for the same old uniparty that's always been in power. And I think that the the main thing that is useful when you're a large hegemonic empire that wants to kind of remain a large hegemonic empire, if not continue to expand, is like anything, whatever 
wherever the zeitgeist is when it comes to kind of missionary ideology is where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. So whoever has that impetus to go stamp their way of life around the world is going to be who is going to be favored by the Unicorn. And um, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, and most of the 2000s, that was like evangelicals. That was like the religious right. Uh, and that were that that was also like open outright Thomas Friedman style neoliberals who who thought if you, you know two countries have McDonald's uh, they won't fight each other. Well, Ukraine and Russia both had a McDonald's in 2022, um, right. Right. And, and I think anyone with their head screwed on their shoulders knew that that argument was always silly. I mean, a, a similar scholar uh, wind back the clock over a century. A similar scholar whose name I forget, I believe he was French. Um, in 1913, wrote a book about how the major powers of Europe will never fight a conventional war against each other ever again because they do too much trade and uh, it would be too expensive. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that and that thesis was very popular and he did like a book tour and everything. And then you know, the year before World War One broke out. Right. Uh, so there was this like kind of weird alliance between business finance particularly very international, less inclined business finance, and these kind of culture war conservatives uh, who, who really wanted American missionaries to go everywhere, who, who wanted the rest of the world to view, view America as the shining city on the hill. Um, those, the Bush administration was such an abject failure in every conceivable way. I believe he, he left office with about a 20% approval rating, like worse than anyone since, even though all the presidents have been very unpopular uh, once they got in office. Um, it just shattered that alliance completely. But the Uniparty uh, over both of the two major parties remained intact. And so they were looking, well, how do we, uh, we kind of keep this process going? And I think Mr. Hope and Change himself, Barack Obama, you know, who, who once upon a time I was a supporter of, um, he comes into office and he kind of shows them the way. He's very amenable to keeping basically all of the policies he inherited. Um, and kind of like Bush, he doubled down as a culture warrior to cover up the fact that he, he wasn't all that different from, from many of the consensuses that had come before. And so um, Obama... worse, I think, because, I mean, that's the thing. I, something I did, maybe didn't realize at the time was, it seems like in retrospect that a lot of the opposition to the in the early war on terror years, it was like, this is Bush and Dick Cheney and and you know donald rumsfeld and people that are easy to hate at least for like college educated liberals right yeah so that and so i mean i i i you know i mean it's maybe it's kind of a academic argument to say whether obama was worse but i feel like you know he expanded the war on terror to multiple new countries and you know brought in so much more surveillance you know the torture program he didn't close guantanamo you know he was he, uh executing uh extrajudicial execution of American citizens and minors. And, you know, I mean, there, you could definitely view it pretty dimly. So are you saying then that realignment maybe is, is mostly just a pivot on behalf of the Uniparty to sort of adapt itself or, or to sort of bring in whatever the new zeitgeist is as a, basically like the moral justification for for interventionist policy yeah absolutely which doesn't mean that people like lower down uh don't see it as a genuinely held conviction but i do think that that's uh, what's allowed to kind of take power over the establishment is is signal boosted you know uh, as we all know anyone who's paid attention to how like the u.s press for instance has covered events since 9 11 uh the more hawkish you are the more seriously you'll be 
taken by the press. And then there, there's this whole new thing that has arisen since Obama's second term, particularly since the 2016 election, which is that authoritative establishment sources are inherently trustworthy is the narrative. And you're like a weirdo in a crackpot if you disagree with them. Uh, and there's been, you know, I mean, we could go into specifics later if we want to, but I mean, there's been numerous examples of people making actual, like, provable claims about something disputed that happens in a foreign country being dismissed as conspiracy theories because it goes against, like, the, the standard kind of narrative that, that is supposedly acceptable. And this kind of wedded with, I think, the media's love affair with Obama, who was viewed as this, this like, very... Uh, you know, like the, the real life uh, kind of a, um, a West Wing presidency, right? Like also they always love Harry Potter. So it's like combined both. He was President Bartledore. He was the wizard president. He came in and he said, you know, government, uh, respect them all. And, and they all fell in love with it. And, and, and then all of their critiques went away because they were skin deep. The, the skin deep critiques of the Bush administration weren't really that the policies for a lot of these people. And I think it was... The aesthetic of who was carrying out the policies. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people. No, I took it seriously. I was like, no, this is look, this is anti-war. I don't like Bush and Cheney, but I don't care. I'm anti-war. That's what it's about, right? Yeah, it's about the policy. <laughs> yeah. But but then it's just. I mean, I don't know if you, did you go to the um, Rage Against the War Machine rally this past February? I don't know if you. I heard wasn't it. able to, but I heard about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I made a point to go to it, you know, and, and, and I, we have a newborn at home. I was like, I was like, ask my wife, you know, can I please take the weekend and go to this? It's kind of a meaningful thing to me. I know it's probably going to be small or whatever. And, and it was, it was small. I don't want to diss it. Like, it's great that they, that they did that. Um, there was, you know, conflict. And it was, it was this weird thing about like, oh, there's like libertarians involved and, you know, they're sort of like infighting and stuff, to, you know, and, but it was just like, it's just weird. I just feel like what in the world happened to, to um to the anti-war movement maybe, maybe it's gonna maybe it's gonna kind of come back now that they're sort of risking possible escalation to nuclear conflict with russia which is insane like i don't understand how we can do this but so you highlighted something there really important that i want to ask you about the media and journalism what in the hell is going on because i mean if we go back to to, to the bush era i mean there were journalists at new york times and elsewhere straight up printing regime talking points as news, lying us into war, right? Uh, we get into, it's crazy expensive. People, U.S. soldiers die, millions of Iraqis die, and these people get promotions, right? And yeah. as we go through, if we look back through the past 20 years of journalism. And, and the people that were right about the war were, were ostracized, was the yeah, other thing. You know, exactly. Bill Donahue who was one of the few people on cable TV who said, let's not have this war, this war is stupid. They haven't proven anything to us about their claims. And they fired him. They got right. rid of him. That was progressive MSNBC that did that. Uh, right. they, they, they threw out those people. They, they, you know, Chris Hedges used to have a much bigger mainstream platform. They, he was definitely right. uh, deplatformed, if you will, to use a, yeah. a modern term. Um, the, this began very much as a response to 9-11. So it is not just like, the rise of a kind of militant social progressivism that's just its newest form. This is just in general, I think, a stronger push to make the press behave. And I think many people in the press are happy to do so if it, it, it enables them to keep their access. So, but like, okay, so now we're at the point where we get these ridiculous stories about who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? I, I think the Easter Bunny probably. Blew. I mean, you know, uh, the all the Russiagate stuff, all this stuff that was totally made up, right? And I, like, 
<laughs> I feel like if you're like I, my background's in the sciences, and I feel like if you're this bad at chemistry, you're gonna get fired. Like you can't yeah. you can't be as bad at other fields as journalists are being about journalism, right? So I, I'm kind of, I'm I'm watching this going like there's no way this can last. This is gonna collapse. I mean, and I think if you look at like viewership of legacy media and stuff, you definitely see numbers declining, and I think public distrust in the media is really really high and stuff. off the charts. But Absolutely. It, it, it's just bizarre to me. Like, does nobody have like a reality check at any point? And maybe it's just that like, okay, if you're off narrative, then basically like your career is over. So the, I guess the social incentives are so strong, but like, like what, I mean, you had a, you had an interesting piece on your blog, like not long ago where you talked about like the cowardly stenographers or whatever. So do you want to talk a little bit about what in the world is going on in journalism and what do you see as the future? And is it just like, okay, well, everybody's going to decamp to Substack and become independent and that's just where it's going to go? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, so my theory, which I can't actually prove this, so it's definitely in, in the realm of theory, but my theory is that, that the um, losing the press in the Iraq war really, really scared a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment because so much of the press was on board with the war and even helped lie us into it, mm -hmm. um, something which they never <laughs> paid any, with the exception of one individual, Judith Miller, never paid any um, price for. Meanwhile, many people that were opposed to it did, but, and arguably still are paying a price for it. Um, but they, all these people, they were really gung-ho about it. Like there is this general kind of like joke, like if you if you let a journalist ride around in the tank, they'll, they'll write anything <laughs> <laughs> you know, for the tank manufacturer. Um, and that was kind of like the Iraq war with the embedded reporting thing, right? Yeah. So, so they were all embedded in there and they talked about how great uh, Tommy Franks was, you know, when he was, you know, laying the seeds of, of a really botched, uh, initially successful, but overall botched the uh, war effort. But then they were also, because they were embedded, they they turned against the war pretty fast, is the thing. Like a lot of these people did in fact say, we have been lied to, um, we have been, um, misled or, you know, I have to reappraise this or whatnot. There was like a huge press mea culpa that wasn't big enough and had no consequences, unfortunately, but um, it did happen. It did happen in like the, the, the mid to late 2000s. And I think that really scared um, a lot of people, maybe particularly in, in intelligence agencies in the Pentagon and, and, and hawkish members of Congress. And so there was much more kind of it became much harder to get press access to cover uh, U.S.-led military interventions. So this is my theory. Once again, I'm not saying this is declaratively. And so I think that the utility of harnessing a cultural zeitgeist, whatever it might be, to kind of moralize for an intervention is kind of this. It, it, it is to, to have an excuse of who you hire and who you fire and who you allow access and who you don't. It's a, a social control mechanism. Um, we only want the, you know good responsible people to be able to report on you know these good responsible wars that we have, and so it becomes kind of like a a, a screening thing. So if you, if you're skeptical about these claims that we, we can remodel societies um, based off of the rightness of whatever, um, then you can be easily weeded out. You say, oh, you don't get to interview with the generals. You don't get to go on the field trip to wherever. You don't get to have that that troop scoop that you so want. 
Um, and so it, it serves as a kind of moralistic social control, a, a similar kind of thing that like a, uh, you know, like a how a theocracy would, <laughs> would would use theology to control who gets in and who gets out, who gets to say what uh, um, about a commentary on policy tracks, whatnot. So I think that overall, ever since then, ever since the press kind of turned against the Iraq war, um, there's been this way of trying to make it so that they can't do that again, or perhaps more accurately say it so that only the press that's really die hard pro-intervention is going to get in. And the best way of seeing that is like, what is their worldview? Is it compatible with this kind of like, we're helping, we're helping guys. Um, and I think that's a big part. Of it. That's that's how it kind of connects. And that's why I view um, like the press particularly negatively when it comes to foreign policy issues, because I think we all know that we need the press <laughs> and it would be better, the better they are, the better we would be. But the problem with that is that if they're not very good, then it, it just it's a propagandistic thing. And then and you'll also if you bring this up, people will say things like, well, OK, sure. But, you know, we're working with the best that we have. And would you rather be in a country where like the press is just like totally a state controlled or whatever? And I would say, well, like that's a really weird comparison because what we the system that we really have here is one of voluntary self-control and i'm not sure if i respect the people that do that more uh than people that just take orders and know that they have to take orders because they're doing it themselves and if they're so ideologically indoctrinated they don't even know that that's what they're doing i, I mean that's a whole new level of, i would regard that frankly as pathetic um right and, and so yes i the reason the reason that they get hired into that position is because they're already predisposed to having the right attitudes that are. So it's like, there's yes. not really a need for like overt censorship or an editor coming in with a red pen and changing what they write. So you can't say that you have to say this because they've already internalized that. And I remember there's an old video of Noam Chomsky from back in the day talking to a reporter and explaining this. And the reporter gets all indignant and says like, nobody tells me what to write. I write what I want. And, he, and Noam Chomsky's like, yeah, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair if you didn't already think the things that, you know, that's kind of how you you got in the door yeah. in the first place. And yeah. so whereas yeah. I've never lived in a totalitarian society, but I or, or, or an authoritarian or whatever controlled society like that. But I imagine that there's an element of it, it just it, like I feel like if you go to an Italian or something and you're like, hey, is your government corrupt? They're like, yeah, totally, you know. But if you're an yes. American and you're like, is your government corrupt? Like, no, you know, we're all in date. Like we think that there's like some kind of purity that's not there. Whereas I feel like these other societies, people might be towing the line propaganda wise, but also they're like, yeah, this is, I mean, this is made up. Like, I don't, I don't believe this. And there might be like, you know, secret communication where you can be real about stuff. Yeah. Whereas for us, it's like, how do you, how can you have like this, this real kind of communication and what I wonder is, like, I see what you're saying, where there's this there's a self-reinforcing process, you know, that's kind of bringing the right the journalists with the right attitudes and orientation in to report on stuff. And, you know, and, and, and I feel like we're seeing a lot of the stories and the reporting becoming increasingly absurd and implausible. And 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 for somebody like Seymour Hirsch to come along and do this reporting to say, like, you know, a lot of indications point to the United States. You know, having a military operation to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline, and then and then 
people are like, oh, this he's a crank conspiracy theorist. I'm like, it's just Seymour Hirsch. Like, it's like, like, how did you just evaporate his like decades of being one of the greatest journalists of our gen- of our period, you know, and, and to, 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 to dismiss his kind of reporting. And I mean, I, skepticism is fine. He hasn't been right about everything. Skepticism is, is totally fine. But yeah, the yeah, way yeah. that it just automatically was, oh, he's a kook. And that, that goes to show you what, what side is viewed as, as kookier is the side that's going to get more put down. And the side that's viewed as more prestigious is going to be put up, which is determines kind of who gets more of the media uh, sway. But I actually think your, your, your point on the, the self-delusion level of, of the collectively the Anglos, because let's not pretend this is just the U.S. press. This right. is like U.K., Canadian, everything press um, as well that is like this. If anything, these days, I think the British press might be the worst. Uh, but uh, but um, like that, I, I've traveled like very widely, including like in the third world, including in, in countries that, you know, have very kind of dark political systems. And uh, your your theory there is 100 percent correct. Um, the media literacy, which is a weird term to use for this, when especially for people that don't have access to information, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, the media literacy of like people in uh, like police states is way, way higher than it is here because the, their innate instinct is it's all propaganda i don't trust anything and they have this almost kind of communal solidarity against like what is on the television um and and oftentimes they will watch it kind of ironically and that level of detachment and skepticism well it doesn't you know apply to everything all the time of course but like I think that's a healthier starting point than this, like, oh, it, it's it's been fact checked by, you know, a, a, a Reddit mod <laughs> or, you know, someone on a cable news network. Therefore, it's real. And I'm like, um, no, I actually think that the 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 kind of uh, trust no one uh, kind of X-Files mantra is probably a better starting point, honestly. Yeah. And do you think that do you think that. Um, I mean, I'm. Okay, so I nerd out about certain things, but so ordinary people, do you think that ordinary people, you know, grab somebody off the street in whatever town in Indiana or something? Do you feel like they're having they're having that kind of baseline of like starting to see or maybe for some time have seen a lot of this media onslaught as being kind of a like is this propaganda mainly circulating within this sort of like upper echelon of elites and the general public is kind of tuned out to it? I know a lot of people go off in some crazy directions and stuff, but I don't get the sense that that's the majority of people. I mean, I have in the area where I live now, I have friends and people that I work with are like working class people, blue collar people, people who didn't go to college and stuff. And my sense is that to me, they seem pretty grounded. You know, they seem pretty, pretty normal, you know, whereas if I flip on NPR, they're going to be telling me that everyone here is a closet neo-Nazi, you know, a member of a militia ready to invade the cities and and install a theocratic christian fascist state and you know i'm like uh no that's no <laughs> that's not happening I, I haven't noticed it happening i mean there's probably five people in the whole country who are interested in trying to make something like that happen they have no power so do you feel like um yeah and three of them are running in the Republican primary right now what's that and three of them are running in the Republican primary right now. So it's not like they're exactly the um, yeah. great examples of the normal people. So we got, so we know where they are, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. 
Okay. Okay. Let me. Okay. Let me reformulate my question and kind of get down to an area. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what a what a normal person thinks. I've never met the, the mythical average person, right? Um, <laughs> but I will say, I, I think you're on point with the fact that I think a lot of skepticism has come when it comes to official narratives, government or the media. A lot of skepticism is more common, but it's not more common in certain classes, like particularly kind of professional managerial classes yeah so you'll you'll see a wide range of views i don't think there's anything mythical either good or bad like a mythical working class person or whatever but i i, I do think that there is a baseline culture in kind of the middle professional class which is so much of the media so much of lower functioning government so much of commentary that is you know that is it doesn't want to look not respectable so often we'll toe the line well well you know uh obviously russia had to blow up the, the north street pipeline because you know russia is bad and uh, and we would never do such a thing and i'm like okay but can you tell me a reason that russia gains from blowing up the north street pipeline because that's the thing i'm not putting it past russia to do something really really bad and i, I mean it the entire Ukraine war is filled with examples of that, but yeah. that's everyone. You know, that's that. This is geopolitics. This isn't a game of of good versus evil. This is a game of interest versus interest, as far as I'm concerned. And what does Russia gain from doing that? From sacrificing its own leverage over Europe's largest economy? It, it makes no sense. And it, but the way it was talked about in in like the respectable press in particular was, well, you know, we don't really know who did it and. Uh, it's good that it happened, and uh, it was probably Russia anyway because they just want to make things more complicated. And like, it's just at some point you have to default to a kind of Occam's razor. Like, not always, but like, if, if you can more simply explain something <laughs> one way, then it's not a kook way of explaining it. And obviously, Ukraine and the United States and maybe Norway had a a fair amount of gain from blowing up the pipeline. Russia didn't. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like the, the way that it's phrased is just so, it's clownish really. And, and and I think it turns people into a more skeptical mode. They see things that don't make sense that are put in this authoritative, declarative way. And, and it, it therefore must make sense. And a, a great example of this, I mean, would be the years we've had of Russia gain. Um, because while Russiagate was much more plausible, I think, on the surface as a pure theory than, than Russia blowing up the North Stream, um, it, it still never had evidence. And once the claim became contested, then it was time. Okay, if you have this proof of a literal Manchurian candidate scenario, wouldn't you think, and, and it's disputed, wouldn't you think then you would be in a rush to declassify everything and to show us this proof, show us this evidence that you have and the fact that the months and then the years went by and evidence never came i was like i'm sorry this is this is just wrong but it was viewed weirdly enough it was viewed as a conspiracy theory position to not believe in the conspiracy theory right at the core of russia so yeah that's, so, so that's this is a, a a serious curiosity to me right because and and you could tie this into like the COVID stuff too so you have this class of people that are that are, that are like living in the, they're the technocrats they're living in this narrative right and the whole the conceit of the whole thing is that we're the experts we're technical we're science-based we're evidence-based they have all these words to describe 
how they're basically just objectively observing reality and making rational decisions and follow the science. And if you don't do that, then you're a kooky, crazy person who's detached, you're yep. a flat earther or whatever, right? And they will seamlessly right. move from advocating a science-based, evidence-based approach to like without even missing a beat into like you're saying, what's the most plausible, even if we don't know who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, well, let's weigh the different possibilities and let's look where the weight of evidence lands and let's, you know, try to be objective about it. But, but like they just move right into, it's like, how do you, how do you move back and forth between this territory of claiming to be science-based? Maybe they're never science-based. Maybe that's all just made up and it's really just, I would, I would, I would say that is wherever the narrative correct. You know, because it's like yeah. it's like it's like okay. Um, for so long, it was like you couldn't talk about hey, maybe this came from the lab in China where they do research on viruses that do exactly this thing. And it's like, are you a crazy conspiracy theorist? And I had good friends, PhDs in, in in environmental engineering from the university, telling me that I was a conspiracy theorist for thinking that that might be a possible among the possible explanations. So how in the world does this? How is it that people shift gears? I feel like I'm always in the same kind of scientific skeptical mind. Maybe I'm deluding myself and that's not really true about me, but I feel like I want to look at every situation with that same kind of, you know, let's look at the evidence. But what, how, how does this work? Is it simply just uh, the social cues and the respectability politics and all that kind of stuff just helps people to seamlessly glide between these different narratives, regardless of evidence or lack of evidence? Yes, I, I think that's a huge part of it. Um, and, and I also think that uh, there is this, you know, there is this thing called scientism, which is, you know, a, a blind faith in scientific process, which I think gets uh, kind of turned into something else entirely because it's, well, a scientist had this opinion, therefore this opinion is more right. And I'm like, well, is this opinion about what they're actually an expert in, first of all? Yeah. And also, I'm sorry, but scientists are people like the rest of us. And I will, even though I'm a humanities person, I will defend the nobility of science, uh, science and, and I will, you know, I, I will say that the scientific process is much more rigorous than what us humanities people do on, on average. But it lacks a certain subtlety, and, and I think it, it, it tends towards this true-false binary that definitely doesn't apply to a, a lot of the human world, uh, particularly in the humanities. And so there is this like kind of uh, among progressive leaning uh, humanities people, there is this kind of weird scientism that's like, oh, well, uh, science is like much less corruptible than other forms of, you know, study. Right. But it is also ruled by money. We live in a system that is ruled by money and social pressure and all these other things. And of course, science can be affected by those things. I think it's a, made perhaps more difficult uh, on baseline. You can literally just kind of pay to play in the humanities in a lot of ways, but um, uh, science has more rigorous protections against that, but it's still affected by that. It's, we still live in this kind of like neoliberal <laughs> hellscape, regardless of, of, of what field you work in. Of course, that has that's media social pressure, that's economic pressure, that's who gets grant funding, all of these things, much like how foreign policy commentary overwhelmingly tends to be skewed on the hawkish side of things because defense contractors are much more willing to pay for hawkish coverage and research reports. So, too, could it be that for profit corporate interests obviously impact? Uh, science and a lot of for-profit corporate interests in the science world is funded by similar or even the same companies 
that are doing defense contracting, uh, that are doing various things that I dabble in media. So th this kind of like weird deferral to the experts. And yeah, I know there's an irony of me saying this because like I like became a geopolitical expert or whatever. But uh, it, one of the things that I, I've learned is, you know, how how it kind of works, right? And um, it, these systems can put immense amount of indirect pressure on people. And so there is this kind of belief that, oh, well, because the scientific method has, has been shown to work really well, and it obviously has, that we can apply this kind of scientific method to the humanities like this kind of like we can just constantly improve ourselves and get better and better and better through this kind of like uh, almost like means testy way of viewing the world and, and i don't think that that is a very good it doesn't overlap very well like it doesn't work <laughs> it doesn't work that way in a practical sense and uh, i mean there's an actual really a, a book i absolutely love by my, my favorite living philosopher john gray um uh called seven types of atheism I was really glad he wrote because he wrote it as a kind of response to the new atheist movement as him he himself is an atheist and he was very unhappy with the new atheist movement <laughs> and I myself am also an atheist who's very unhappy with the new atheist movement and I really liked this book that came out and it was very much like dunking on the kind of scientism and the, the blind euphoria of this like well if we all just act like scientists we can improve things forever we can make things better forever and he was like well the actual history of like secular thought isn't it all, all like this liberal humanist teleology that we're told this is what it is it's actually filled with a whole bunch of different people that think a whole bunch of different thoughts his the section he and i would put myself in uh, he has a chapter called atheism without progress <laughs> um and and that was like very much like describing like you can be totally skeptical you can totally disbelieve in the supernatural and you can still not believe that humanity is capable of becoming this rational perfectible being um and that, that things will always be messed up and screwed up and that your attempts to kind of perfect things will probably backfire or, or be ineffective and, and that's a level of nuance of thought i think that has been totally scrubbed out of of commentary and in particular kind of like, like progressive commentary because it's like no you're progressive you have to be humanist you have to believe that everything we do is like the scientific process it's always making the world better for everyone and we're always improving everything for everyone and i'm like look i mean first and foremost like I'm a foreign policy realist, okay? I, I think that nations are highly evolved versions of tribes, and I think we're all squabbling over territory and resources, and, and I think all the technology that we've invented has not fundamentally changed who we are as a species and as a being. And, and so I think progressivism in particular, I think it's very easy to kind of co-op to this kind of missionary mentality or this kind of media control narrative, because it's like, well, don't you want to stand on the right side of history everyone's favorite phrase and it's like okay but how many things in the past were viewed as the right side of history that we now make fun of or were horrible i mean eugenics was one of those things that was once on the right side of history so like how how are, are it just it's not that simple right we don't have this simple teleological narrative and yet this is how it's sold and this is how you get those weird conflations like, oh, you disagree with this. Oh, you disagree with the U.S. narrative on Syria. Uh, that means that you are, you know, part of the alt-right or, oh, that you 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 don't like, you don't believe uh, this narrative about this event. Well, you, you're you probably secretly a racist. <laughs> it's like, okay, like where do these inferrals come from, right? Like it's, 
they're connecting dots that aren't there. And I think that the reality of the world is just too chaotic for, for everyone to automatically want to connect all these dots, which is why I think that the starting point of skepticism should begin with, you know, media coverage and whatnot, right? If these people want to hold themselves up as, as these great, like, I don't know, in the tradition of like Robert Ingersoll or whatever, these like kind of great humanist thinkers, then you would think that they would take a much more critical attitude towards entrenched power and and media projection. And yet uh, we've seen a concerted effort to kind of win them over to the camp of like, actually, you know, <laughs> uh, corporations are great if they put a pride flag on something and <laughs> and a lot of people will fall for it it's crazy that, that's wild to me too like i was saying like i kind of got activated originally you know assuming that radical or left politics had an element of the wto battle to seattle you know anti-corporate and stuff and yeah this is this is an area that i kind of wanted to touch on with you because you had mentioned uh i think in one of our emails or something that when you had lived in D.C., you saw kind of a transformation occurring in the annual Pride Parade and how yeah. it, it morphed into, you know, originally it was just, you know, about, you know, diversity and inclusion of people who have different sexualities and all, all the stuff, you know, all the good stuff that we're normally on board with. But then you got Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and the CIA and McKinsey and, 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 it, and, it, and it turns into something different. And it seems like you know, is this just another ex example of this sort of uniparty establishment co-opting a sort of current zeitgeist to brand itself, to to sort of grease its functioning or and, and, and so maybe explain a little bit about what you think is going on there and um, to what extent are people really buying into this? And, or, or is it or, or specifically the PMC, the professional managerial class? You know, it, they are they really just buying into this or are they kind of like, wait a minute, you know, like Max Blumenthal interrupting that conference recently and saying <laughs> how many yeah. diversity, equity and inclusion bombs have been dropped on ch children in Yemen and stuff like that. And so, like, what's what's really going on there? Yeah, no, that was that was interesting. I mean, I didn't bring that up the last time I was on the podcast because I, I was really wanted to just focus on my specific, you know, kind of nonpartisan research and not so much talk about me personally but like that was part of the background of what would eventually become doing the woke imperium was that i lived in dc for three and a half years and in that three and, a, and that this was this was late 2015 to you know uh, mid 2018 basically uh or mid 2019 and um i it was uh it was it was interesting to, it was you could the pride parade itself was i mean it wasn't the only thing but it was the thing that every year it got worse <laughs> and worse and and it became more and more i mean first it started with which was very like it, it's at this point it almost seems like a quaint debate but the the debate like 10 years ago five five to ten years ago maybe was that should cops be at pride right that was like a big debate and and because you know, historically speaking, cops are the enemy of the gay community, <laughs> and and, and um, uh, that was that was my position too. I, I didn't like that there were cops at Pride. I mean, I get that things change and like whatever, but I was like, this was it, it seemed somehow it, it didn't fit. I didn't like it, and I, I kind of saw it as like the start of something something <laughs> worse to come. 
and uh, then it kind of it kind of spiraled from there. And every year that I saw it, because I lived in Center City, D.C., it was like right there. Um, every year I saw the parade, there would be more of these like the Raytheon float, like the <laughs> the Lockheed Martin float, and and with like uh, presumably like they're like they're like gay employees there. And it was like watching like the, the Pete Buttigiegification of, you know, this thing happen like pretty rapidly when you're considering the amount of time that's going by. And it was it, it was just weird to see like every year the amount of establishment of like kind of corporate and like whatever. I'm not saying that D.C. by is in any way indicative of like your average city i i suspect that in this case in particular it is a very much an outlier but it is still this is a trend that is clearly happening i would say in most major cities uh you you, you see the city bank pride for you know like this is this kind of thing and it's a it's a it's a kind of mutual thing right so you have you have people entering the workforce and companies wanting to appeal to them. So this is not just like this. Is, I don't want to give the impression that this is all top down. People are taking marching orders here, uh, right. which I think is like how like the right wing kind of views this. Right. Like, I, I don't think that at all. I think this is very much like a, a naturally occurring thing. It's just more minority groups entering the PMC in a way. But it also shows that as they enter the PMC, they're being divorced from like whatever, like, the views that you would think that they normally should have and so it's kind of like a it really goes to show how class is more important than identity politics because if you, you anyone can be assimilated into a class framework and and then start be part of this kind of feedback but it's also in dc in particular dc like the dynamics are so strange there like it's a recession-proof city uh everything is more expensive than it should be for a city that isn't actually that, that big compared to the most famous cities in, in the u.s right um it's recession-proof because it's like the government is basically funding the majority of what goes on there so it's less kind of reliant on market forces prices never go down on anything they only go up and so like DC is a weird outlier in that capacity. And so I think that like, you're kind of seeing like, just something just happening without anyone thinking about it, but it's also saying a trend because it's the federal government. Uh, it, it's a very weird, it, it's just weird to viscerally see that while all this is going on. Well, you know, the while I was there, that was, that was during uh, the, the tail end of the U.S. funding um, to uh, at least a billion dollars, uh, the, the Syrian rebels who were, uh, uh, you know, extremely, shall, to, to put it extremely politely, shall we say, um, reactionaries um, on social issues. And you have this like Raytheon pride flag coming down. And, and, and meanwhile, those weapons are going to these basically jihadists in Syria. And it's, and we're, and the media at the same time, well, a few years before, had fallen for this whole, you know, thing called the gay girl in Damascus, where yeah. where this 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 uh, American man pretending to be a lesbian Syrian, um, what who I actually met the month before anyone found out about this because he was living in Edinburgh at the same time I was, so I actually ended up meeting this guy <laughs> before I knew any of this, <laughs> and then a month later, uh, it was like, oh, 
yeah, that guy you met last month, he's he's the he's Amina Araf, the, the woman who was supposedly detained uh, by the Syrian security services. And, and the media fell for it because it was a nice story about the evil, bad regime persecuting gay people. And then a few years later, you have the U.S. funneling, funneling weapons to people who were actually murdering gay people and many other people all across Syria uh, because, you know, we wanted to get rid of Assad. And so there's just this like level of contradiction and farce that is imbues all of this stuff and is particularly strong in DC because the federal government employees just don't they just view it as like oh this is the the natural social progress of whatever but meanwhile the policies aren't changing at all <laughs> particularly on the other side of the equation outside of the United States and so it, it's it's just like when you see stuff like that like I don't know it just it really just reinforces just how this is this is continuity rather than change. Uh, this is a continuity meant to look like change, uh, but it, it really is a continuity because the the systems of power themselves are not changing. The, the foreign policy priorities remain exactly the same as they ever were. But who gets to be the favored children of the rhetoric? Who gets to be the 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 scion of, of who gets to represent this in the media? Um, that changes, but that can always change. Those people are easily replaceable. Uh, you know, the, the the useful toady of the past was Bill O'Reilly. Now it's Rachel Maddow. Uh, yeah. These things can go back and forth. They can go all the way around. And, and that kind of feeds into this whole thing. Like, well, if you're not for U.S. interventionism, then, you know, the U.S. is the only country that, like, cares about the, you know these issues. And I'm like, but even if you take that totally seriously, and, and I think many people do, in fact, care about it but like what is the response to these policies right it looks like missionary activity people can say stuff like oh well like if a if a gay rights organization opens in a country on the u.s's shit list then people can say and they will they'll domestically say that's probably a cia friend <laughs> you know how to tell me how that helps any of the people you're supposed to be helping with this intervention this is what, because I mean, it does exactly the opposite crazy. What drives me crazy about all this stuff is you think to the extent like one is this going to even help the people it's supposedly supposed to help and what are the odds it's actually going to hurt those people you yeah. know it seems like in reality so much of this stuff is that's kind of what i thought about when there was a lot of activism going around around uh, defund the police mm -hmm. like there's gonna be a lot of poor black people in bad neighborhoods that are harmed by this yeah and it's gonna be a lot of well-off pmc people that are gonna gain you know virtue signaling points for saying mm -hmm. this and they're claiming to help these people and it's going to hurt those people. And is there not someone coming through and like pointing a shining a light on the contradictions here, you know, and maybe that's like the people that um, that that bring up those contradictions. That's kind of considered impolite and it runs afoul of respectability in a on a related issue. I wanted to ask your opinion of to what extent do you see like the overproduction of elites contributing to these phenomena? Oh, huge. <laughs> this is the, I mean, I even mentioned it in the original Woke Imperium. There's a whole section on it because I think that is one of the most important factors going on here. Uh, that we have too many people who are trained for kind of technocratic civil society jobs. There's not enough positions for them. So as they compete, the competition gets meaner. And, and one of the, the, the kind of um, ways of competing is the ideological purity test. 
Yeah. So it's like the Confucian civil service exam, but with this like tinge of like kind of evangelism about it, right? But like find like a really gung-ho true believer. And so it, it creates a weird like virtue signal arms race where people are constantly uh, kind of competing with each other uh, in order to show who is like the most progressive person to fill this position. Like who cares, but who can speak all the, the id poll lingo and, and drop all the, the, the the kind of uh, smart sounding, but not actually very smart, kind of like postmodern talking points. Yeah. And it, so like, I think elite overproduction might be the single greatest factor in all of this in a weird way, because you have you have these kind of positions that require like someone who is somewhat urbane and cosmopolitan and, and has some degree of training, but then there's too many people that have that are now checking off those boxes so that they have to fight each other and then the only way they can really do it especially when they're younger and they don't have like they can't really compare work experience size and resume they can only really be through like truly buying into it now what, what extent this is cynical calculation in terms of careerism and what extent this is really buying into it i don't know but i imagine the true believers are better at acing the interview because they don't come across as fake and so there is that whole level of, which is why I like diversity, equity, inclusion, and this kind of HR rhetoric has really taken over everything because it, it serves a very, not just for the federal government, but for like corporations, it serves like an extremely useful role in like finding who is the most loyal uh, soldier. And also like it is useful for companies in a weird way because it helps divide workers. It helps be able to put workers against each other and have a kind of snitch culture. Oh, did you say something that was problematic, my least favorite word ever, uh, you know, whatever. Someone felt uncomfortable because you made a joke about whatever and it, it becomes this whole like kind of thing. Like, I mean, I know that I myself am demographically speaking a millennial but uh, but I, uh, my mind and cultural tastes are very gen x <laughs> in a weird way uh, hence the guns and roses shirt and um <laughs> i i just like when this stuff like comes up i'm like oh my god who cares like like uh, oh is that like i don't i never in a million years would i want someone to treat me with kid gloves uh for you know anything you know and never in a million years would i want to be seen professionally as anything but good good at what I do professionally. Uh, all I want to avoid is, you know, being arbitrarily fired, you know, for, for some stupid prejudice, you know, that's it. But this kind of switch from like advocating for interests of minority groups in a kind of like, you know, live and let live modus vivendi way, which was the correct way, uh, in, into this weird missionary police the work culture way is really bad, but it's been really good for companies. And it's really good for kind of people that want purity tests, which I think is a lot of people right now. And I think it, you see this reflected in corporations, the government and media, all of it. This is like, it's useful for the powers that be so they support this culture. Okay. Uh, a bunch of, there's a bunch of words peppered throughout your responses to these things. Like you mentioned, like the, the true believer person might ace the interview because they've really internalized a lot of this, like the, you know, these values, it's, it's a moral framework, right? And the extent to which people can internalize and, and, and reflect this moral framework can help them in their professional success. You mentioned that a lot of the interventionism is done uh, with a kind of missionary bent to it, you know? Words I think that have appeared in some of your writing are messianism right? The messianism, the true believers, um, you highlight the work of another scholar. I'm blanking on her name. It's Emily something, but she wrote a book on democratism. 
Emily Finley, she wrote an excellent book on democracy yes. that everyone should read. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to touch on that because I, there, I mean, I haven't read it, but I've read, I've read you writing about it. it sounds really amazing. So highly recommended. So a couple, a, this is where I maybe I want to kind of drill into a couple things here and then maybe wrap. Um, you know, you mentioned another one of your favorite books was by this guy who wrote about different types of atheism. Right. Yeah. I think one of the pretenses of our modern or postmodern society is we've sort of moved beyond religion. That's all old, superficial, super, uh, superstitious, backwards stuff that holds us back. It's oppressive. You know, uh, it's not in keeping with science and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like our society has this belief that we're somehow we've transcended religion. But <laughs> in all of this analysis, it appears that we're one of the most religious societies in the world. We like, are. <laughs> like our religion is like progressive technocratic democratism. Yeah. And we truly believe that everyone in the world will be greatly benefited by adopting this way of seeing the world and this way of operating. And if we have to impose it on them at the barrel of a gun, we're going to do it because we're doing it for their own good, which sounds to me like the story all colonizers and missionaries have told themselves for yes. years, if, not, if not thousands of years. So, you know, um, so is there uh is there like a strand of, of of atheism that permits this you know a sort of like religion but uh in different words or religion in different terms can you explain that in terms of ways of thinking about about atheism if this thing kind of seems like this what is I'm a, talking about is like a theology here and the united yeah. states dc is kind of like the vatican of this particular theology yes Although I would say that this theology is extremely Protestant, so okay. <laughs> being the Vatican of it is is, is a kind of ironic. But you're, you're right; it kind of is. It's it's, it's the, the U.S. is kind of the, the Vatican of Protestantism, and um and, and that I don't think once again I don't think there's a huge break. I don't think there's a huge break between the U.S. Uh, the, the Great Awakening, the Puritans, and what we have now. I think the the, the only break is that we're we're throwing out a lot of the supernatural element, or at least overtly supernatural elements of it. But I think the underlying thought process is the same. And, and I think the explanation for it is that belief, and this is this this will really make Protestants mad, but I think belief is the least important thing in religion. I, I think that the cultural complex is the most important thing. This is the thing, I mean, I am not, my actual background, um, I come from a like a racially mixed family, so it, it's not all the same. But like my the, the white part of my background, actually, I was raised Quaker, and, and I believe originally a lot of those people were Presbyterian. Um, so, so like I actually have more of a Protestant background. I, I don't have any Catholic background, but um, I, I think the Catholics got it much more right philosophically speaking, uh, in that they, they were building a, a church, they were building a community, and how much you really believe in it is less important than like what you do in the community. Um, and the Protestants are much more about like the true, like your your true inner self, like the mind body divide. You're like you're what you're really truly about, and that I I feel we still have that. I don't. Uh, that's a big part of like the American, the North Atlantic, the Anglo-centric worldview is this like your individual beliefs about how strongly you feel about something as a moral thing is the thing. And, and in that way, I, I actually think that we are one of the most religious countries in the world. That we, we've changed the kind of official outward expression of it, but we have not changed what it's been like. Because when the U.S. has these upticks in old school religion, it was like, 
McKinley and the Empire building was a big part of it. Manifest Destiny and the Great Awakening was a part of it. Uh, Bush and the Evangelicals was a part of it. The, the, you know, this is now just the left wing discovering it's like it's mega church <laughs> snake handling side. <laughs> and it's it's gotten really into these like esoteric, like true inner core self beliefs. You know, uh, you can be possessed by the demon of racism. You can be possessed by the demon of homophobia. Like and you have to like self-flagellate to get it out. Like it's very it, it is a very like and it is based on this missionary mentality. And I think that really um it, it just goes to show that like the, the pmc adopts this very outwardly secular worldview but it really is the same worldview that that the the, the white anglo-saxon protestant the boston brahmins used to have in the days of colonialism and i think that you see you see this uh like and and social justice activism is perfect for it like it even has this kind of like overly dramatic like People, people have like they stage like die-in protests and stuff like that, which is very similar to like how how anti-abortion activists operate. Like I think the psychology is extremely similar between the groups, and I think they're pulling from the same tradition unwittingly. They would, neither of them would ever admit that, but but uh, unwittingly, it, it is this kind of American <laughs> Protestant uh, evangelical tradition. And um, I don't think we should allow ourselves to be fooled by the fact that its political priorities uh, might, may change. Um, it connects though, with this worldview of democratism, which is really well um, summarized by Emily Finley in her book, uh, which is this like, it, it's kind of a synthesis of kind of Rousseau's idea that mankind could be saved through revolutionary political activity. Um, so you combine that with this kind of like Anglo uh, Anglo Protestantism, and you get I, I mean I think that inevitably leads to stuff like like wokeness um, because it, it is this like marriage of the only way to prove that you are truly good, which you know you are, you're one of the elect on the inside, is by like really <laughs> pontificating to the extreme about how everyone has to be more like you, and uh, obviously that's useful for expansionists. But democratism itself is this kind of blind, almost technocratic faith uh, that can manifest in many different ways in different countries, which is just that democracy led by a kind of patrician elite is the best form of government and everyone should adopt it. And if anything, it's threatened by alternate governance existing. So now mar marry that with this um, missionary mentality, right? And you obviously have this like, we have to go out there. We have to change these countries or they will change us. And, and this is where these days you get this weird rhetoric about a new Cold War, about uh, a, a quote unquote axis of authoritarianism, usually implied to be Russia, China, and Iran. Um, you, you get this like we and that it's you know it's interfering in our elections and it's trying to socially engineer our society and this is of course a weird little bit of projection isn't it because oh. we're often in trying to interfere in other people's societies yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and trying to pick and choose who rules them right oftentimes not very democratically i mean what did we do in 1953 in iran you know we we toppled the democracy we put in we we, we reinstalled the full powers of the monarchy um you know what, what did we do in chile in 1973 like uh 
these are uh, what did we attempt to do very recently and extremely farcically in Venezuela in 2020 with a Silver Corp USA and a big shit show party of goofy clowns who thought they could show up on the on a fishing boat and take over Venezuela, and then they all got arrested by fishermen. Like what? <laughs> like what? What is this? You know, but what is this insane faith that makes people think that if we're in danger if other people have a different governing system and, 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 or that you're defending a government system if you say it's different you have to live with it that means that you secretly are part of them you you're a putinist you want to do whatever and it's like that's not true like i i, I don't want to live in russia <laughs> there's a million reasons i don't want to live in russia but russia's future is up to russia and um the idea that we're in this weird cosmic battle is an ideological imposition that is not reflected in real life. In real life, people are looking after their interests. They're competing over resources. They're competing over allies. They're competing over their security. It, it, sometimes an ideologue will take power in the country, which is incredibly dangerous, and they will behave irrationally. But the, most of the time, there are rational reasons, even if the policies are badly executed, there are rational reasons why people do what they do. It's also rational for a country to be authoritarian if it's against the U.S. in a weird way, because if you have a more open political system, it's easier for U.S. intelligence to infiltrate. <laughs> so it, it's in a way, it's a kind of survival mechanism, which once again, it kind of brings me to my point about like NGOs, right? And like minority groups. If you actually intervene more, you, you often make the situations worse in these countries. The most secure countries that are capable of reform are the ones that feel that they are fully sovereign and they're not under external pressure to reform because that actually, if anything, makes them anti-reform. But that, when they so feel that, secure... You just hit on something that I was going to ask you about, which is what explain why it is that that the sort of the, the elites... Uh, in our system, why they hate authoritarians so much. Like authoritarian is basically just like, that's one of the worst insults that they can say. And it, and it sounds like one, of, at least part of that, what you're saying is that, okay, so like um, Victor Orban is resistant to too much influence of the US coming in. So whether he's a horrible human rights abusing dictator or not, it's like he's going to get that treatment because he's putting down some firm boundaries to like whatever the NGOs coming in and messing around with the culture of Hungary. So, so, so authoritarians potentially can be resistant to some of this kind of transformation from without. Um, something that I noticed too, is it seems like with technocracy, there's also this diffusion of responsibility. Like who's to blame for Iraq? Well, if I mean, if we had one authoritarian dictator and it was their sole decision to do that, then you could blame that guy for doing yeah. that. Right. But it's kind of like our system. It's like you hear statements like mistakes were made. Right. It's spoken in the sort of, you know, impersonal tense or whatever. You know, so do you think that that sort of diffusion of like, is there sort of a connection between this diffusion of responsibility for what's going on and a sort of hive mind that everybody's kind of tapped? And so it's really sort of the hive mind. Or there's some kind of is there some is there a word I think um, NS Lyons was calling it an egregore or some word for like a kind of spirit that animates a collective consciousness. So do you see that playing a role? Yeah, sure. Um, but the, the thing that actually most strongly comes to my mind is uh, uh, 
is that this is actually the, the kind of point you're making here is the very point Thomas Hobbes made in the 17th century. Uh, Th Thomas Hobbes, uh, who, who is, I think, famous to moderns as the kind of pro-authoritarian philosopher, his thought his thinking is actually much more nuanced than that. Um, I don't agree with him on everything by any means, but he is absolutely worth reading um, because he, he, he is an incredibly smart and very insightful guy. He was trying to figure out how to avoid more. He lived through the English Civil War, um, you know, which came uh, hot on the heels of the Thirty Years' War, which was proportionally the deadliest war in European history. Um, and, and those things were not entirely caused by, but fueled by sectarianism, particularly religious sectarianism. And he was trying to kind of get over that. He was trying to create a centralized state that would abolish, you know, these kinds of like weird, in his day, kind of the equivalent of identity politics. And um, he actually, his point, he's remembered today as being like pro-authoritarianism. His actual point was that, you know, there's a certain social contract that is going to benefit the ruler over the world for any functioning society to exist. But he he said that at, there are multiple forms of government and that they should respect each other. However, his personal preference, which he didn't hide, was for monarchy. Um, and his argument in that, in that case was actually in a monarchy, this is one of his arguments, you know who to blame when things go wrong. In a republic, people can always deny who is actually at fault for the failure of policy, but you know who the king is. And if the king goofs up, you know the king is the one that goofs up. Um, that's actually a point he makes, which is one of his better points, I think. Um, though I, I am unconvinced that monarchy is superior myself, but <laughs> nevertheless, um, I, I, um, I, I think that that's actually a very valid point. Um, people know who to blame. In a country like that, which is once again not to say that it is ideal to live in a country like that, but uh, they do know who to blame. And and in our system, it's so diffuse; it everyone can just kind of get away with. It. They, they, they can just it be a, a failed policy becomes a too big to fail policy, and then uh, you know uh, what, what's the, the military phrase is a uh, uh, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan, right? It's <laughs> it's it's similar to that. There is no way of of really getting blame. And it's even kind of hard to say because so many people are, are involved in the decision-making process. Like you can say who to blame for Iraq. And obviously I would say the buck stops with Bush and Cheney, but you know, you can you can talk about Rumsfeld, you can talk about Bill Crystal, you can talk about a willing media that went along with it. You can talk about so many people. And then when you're done with it, you're like, oh yeah, this is the thing though. In our system, all these people did kind of have a because they did kind of have a voice. And then how do you deal with that, right? And, the, and then the whole establishment is kind of on the hook for it. So that's a, like, that's, you, that's so part of the- question. Maybe this is a Hobbesian thing then. So, uh, okay. So if you have like, uh, if you have a central person, monarch, maybe, maybe the right word, maybe not the right word, but you have like some kind of central authoritarian- A sovereign, he would say. Sovereign. Would call a sovereign. Okay, yeah. a sovereign. Okay, if that's the word. And- I'm just imagining this person, they can't be empowered by themselves because if it's just one guy that's in power, he's going to get killed by the next guy, you know? And so what I'm imagining, a scenario I'm imagining is um, uh, that guy's got to have an alliance with some group, right? And could there be a dynamic where you have some kind of a sovereign that has an alliance with like the working class, you know, the the, the masses, and, and there's a kind of dynamic where you have this what I see our system is right now is like it's kind of like this this upper middle of technocratic oligarchs kind of has all all the power, you know, 
and they they kind of share the hive mind and rule based on that. Could could some kind of authoritarian make an alliance with ordinary people, where you have a figure, somebody like like a like an Andrew Jackson or like a Huey Long or like his kind of populist leader against the technocracy? To you know, and would that could you could you foresee like some kind of dynamic like that taking place? Because I feel I feel like this technocracy that we have is to me it seems inherently unstable. You know, there's just too many things that are unsustainable that are going on, and the the mass of people are being left out, and living conditions are have been on a, a decline for a long time, and and at some point you know you could imagine some things really starting to shift, and so I'm just wondering if there if there is a model where I I don't know I guess I'm just a little bit trying to project into the future how this might might shake out and so if you have any thoughts about that and then i i have an idea where i want to go to rap but let me know okay. what you think. i i i think a lot of people sell themselves as that i i think um a lot of the 20th century communist experiments were were that originally or trying to be that um you could probably make a case that that um uh I mean, this is not something you'd really want to emulate, but, but like Robespierre was trying to do that. Um, uh, maybe even Napoleon, uh, although definitely not, not not someone who was against the war making. But, <laughs> but um, uh, Napoleon was an excellent administrator uh, and obviously very good at war, but he, he is living proof that being bad at diplomacy is probably the worst thing you could ever be. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you see this kind of an attempt to do this a lot. Um, an attempt by a new government to say I'm kind of against the, the the people that immediately oppress you. I'm above them. I'm going to oppress them. We can kind of squeeze them together. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, rhetorically, this comes up a lot in history. Its success rate isn't particularly high. <laughs> so yeah, usually, what ends up happening is eventually this new ruler, and it could theoretically be a class of rulers. It wouldn't have to be one person. Um, but this new ruler does accommodate with the kind of upper tier technocrat class because it's just easier to govern with them than against them. Oh. Um, I think the, the probably that the way in which you would do it would be to to use that kind of dual uh, approach to scare them enough to conduct a purge of the worst members in them. And then integrate like more of uh, new pe people to, to shake it up, but then allow them to govern again, you know, effectively at once there's been somewhat of a purge. Now, like I, I'm not philosophically speaking, I'm not a progressive. I think history is cyclic. So I think processes like these are very normal and they happen all the time. Um, and, and so these things kind of, I mean, this is like my favorite uh, historiographer is Ibn Khaldun, and he was he was writing in the 14th century, and he talked about this process. He said, you know, uh, it, it wasn't so much like a, a dictator or a revolutionary in his time, it was, it was nomadic people, it was uh, barbarian and nomadic people. They had to come in, they were part of the political ecosystem. They were better fighters, so they could fight better for their numbers. Once society became corrupt enough, they would come in. They would take over. They would shake up the place. They wouldn't get rid of the government and all the people in the government, but they would they would get rid of the worst people. They would they would promote the people they liked more. They put themselves on the top. You know, then then they create a new era of prosperity. A couple generations later, they're fully integrated. The whole thing becomes corrupt again. The process repeats, and this is basically how he saw civilization. Now he was 
focusing on the central point of, uh, of, of his worldview, which was North Africa and the Middle East. So he saw these as a step nomadic people, which, you know, the book I published is on the geopolitics of step nomadic people. So I'm very fascinated by the subject myself. Um, but, you know, that he was kind of limited to that. I, I think uh, there's many different forms of this process. It doesn't always have to be a migrating barbarian tribe. It could be an internal thing. I think I would like to see a synthesis of of, of like Marxist and Ibn Khaldun thoughts, uh, because I think you could make a case for this on a class-based thing. You could say, oh, you know, you could probably use like the proletariat. It of course requires Marxists to, to give up teleology, which I really wish they do, because there's a lot I like in Marxism, but I can't consider myself to be a Marxist because they do have that like kind of like linear progress thing that the liberals have like I just think is wrong. It's just historically incorrect. Uh so but if, if they kind of adopted Marxist class analysis and materialism to the cyclical model, I actually think that that would be a very interesting uh thing. I'd be very interested in, in what could come from that. Um so yeah, you could have a class element to it you can have whatever you you need some kind of i think government of outsider right like you need some kind of outsider to where, wherever that comes from whether it's culturally or or class-based or whatever um you need an outsider to be like oh i can see because i'm not completely enmeshed in this what the problems are and the way that the governing class can't because they're too they're too into it um and i can kind of selectively like prune the garden you know um, and it's a never-ending process. It will never. It will only solve your problems for a couple generations if you're lucky. But you know that's politics. It's always temporary. So, um, like to me, that's kind of how I would do it. Like I don't think it, it would be. But the problem with democratism is that you're not even able to have these conversations unless yeah. you're constantly just singing the praises of President Bartletor. You know, like unless you're constantly just like uh, this idealized West Wing worldview. Of like how how and not even U.S. politics works that way, right? U.S. politics is also favor trading. We have legalized lobbying, which is like a kind of form of corruption. And if you count that as corruption, we're one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So yeah. if you if you put like all these things like this ideal of like the drawing room and the boardroom and like these beautiful technocrats who just have everything figured out and, and oh ooh, here's a quip from Voltaire, like you know it doesn't it's it's limiting it's not saying that those things don't have value there's a lot of things in liberal democracy i really really like but uh, uh like bill of rights like the idea of a bill of rights is, is fantastic but you know if if you just limit yourself if, if you also prevent yourself from learning from other countries is the thing right other countries have different experiences and they're not all bad just because they're not like us doesn't mean that they're all bad there's some interesting stuff that has happened in the past and so it's a weird it's funny because it's always sold as this like cosmopolitan like enlightened way of thinking is is this like everyone should be a liberal democracy everyone should be hyper philosophically progressive but like when you really look at it like that is so provincial because it just writes off the majority of the human experience historically and even in the modern world it just says oh don't look at that only look at like the anglo countries in scandinavia and you know and, and that's just so that's just bad like i think more options is better and it, it, i think that the individual communities should intelligently make decisions and they should also learn what not to do for people's mistakes and and, and yeah there's going to be more mistakes from certain kind of countries that aren't us actually uh, uh to, to really avoid, you know, you don't, I, I don't think you want to end up, uh, you know, in, in some kind of absolute, whether it's ethnic or sectarian hot mess, but there's a lot of stuff to be learned that, that, that you can't just learn from this dumb 
limiting narrative of the human race only reached like this esteemed maturity in the 18th century and, and we're just kind of perfecting it around the edge it's like no screw that that's dumb like <laughs> right so okay this is where i want to wrap and i want to touch on some of your recent work where you've done a lot of stuff writing about middle powers and we you, you could talk a bit about what you mean by middle powers and that sort of thing but there's a, a there's a personality on twitter and and a youtuber commentarian and he's he's more on the right. I'm sure you'd find a lot to disagree with him on, but you may know him, Aaron McIntyre. Does that name sound familiar? I've heard of him. I, I can't say I'm super familiar with his work. But. Yeah, I think you would find a lot interesting about him and a lot to disagree with. But one of the one of his viral memes is um, he, he's made the statement that the people who want to win will always win over the people who just want to be left alone. And so. The, my my kind of where I want to zero in with you is you you are an advocate of the realism and restraint school, right? And I read like I read your stuff; it makes total sense. You know, you're talking about you know this is like common sense. This is like strategically smart. This is strategically not smart. You know, and this this is evidence based and all this kind of stuff. So my question is, all this conversation has revolved around sort of ruling uniparty now is extremely ideological you know we're using words like messianism and and missionary and you know they move seamlessly between talking about data and talking about narratives that have no data support and without even a blip of, of recognition and so you know your school of thought is coming in and essentially trying to talk common sense to these people who are really taking a theological evangelical perspective right and you mentioned the phrase live and let live and which I'm like, this is like central to my worldview is like live and let live. People do things differently. I may not agree, but it's not up to me. Live and let live and live and let live seems to be impossible under this theological order. It's like we can't have somewhere in some back, some people living in some back of beyond structuring their society in a way that we disagree with. Right. Yeah. Right? And it's kind of like my dream as a person from Appalachia. I grew up in West Virginia. I live in Western North Carolina now. And my kind of dream would be. To, it would be like uh, Scots-Irish Appalachian nationalism, where we all, it's kind of like Appalachia is like the redneck shire. And we're all just hobbits happily farming, you know, and 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 smoking the pipe weed and and having parties and fireworks and left. I'm glad that you picked the, the, the highland south and not the lowland south for this, by, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. So, um. But but anyway, so so Aaron makes this statement that I suspect that there's probably a lot of truth to it, but I wish that there wasn't this idea that people that just want to be left alone are going to get railroaded over by the people who want to win. Right. And so with this, some of the ideas that you've discussed in some of your recent pieces about these middle powers, like, you know, trying to be neutral or trying to be outside of great power conflict and all this kind of stuff, do a lot of these countries stand a chance against a hegemon who's a zealot about the worldview, about the way of government, about the way of running the economy, about the way of the culture and all that kind of stuff. And is it like, are these sort of peripheral areas, like do we, should we just batten down and just kind of wait for that to fall apart? Or how is it that this realism and restraint school starts to get traction when your interlocutor is 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 like a, a theological zealot, how do you approach? Well, there's there's a couple there's a couple uh, uh, 
rejoiners to that. I would say uh, one thing is that in in a closed system, in a totally closed system, that statement is correct. The the a, a the the fanatics will beat uh, the people who want to be left alone. But we don't live in a closed system at all. There's a million different. It's kind of like saying the Earth is a closed system. Well, it's actually powered by the sun. So no, it's not. Um, <laughs> this this is a similar dynamic, and I would say that that this applies across the board. The 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 fanatics have short term advantage for sure. But the problem is the number one danger for power wielding on the macro scale is overextension. And the the fanatics are guaranteed to overextend themselves if they're successful because they don't know when to stop. They just keep going, they keep going, keep going. Their logistical supply chain gets longer and longer and longer and more vulnerable. Their societal cohesion breaks down as they have to cover it for more and more people who may not agree with them. And so messy, messy necessary compromises are inevitably going to show up in their own order, first of all. But even more importantly, as they expand, now there are exceptions to this, of course, but the exceptions are pretty rare. Everything I say is proportional, not absolute. I'm not a platonist. <laughs> I, I, I take I take proportionality over absolutes every time. But um, I would say the vast majority of the time, as someone expands, maybe they reach a certain point with natural borders, with whatever, where th that has benefited them for sure. I mean, expansionism isn't inherently bad by any means. It's how everyone gets started and, and gets situated. But once you go over the point where it's beneficial to you, it just weakens you continuously you the wars become more distant more expensive harder to justify which means you have to pay your troops more money or forcibly conscript them which costs many more problems uh down the line everything becomes more expensive because it's further away because it's harder to justify because it isn't relevant to the everyday person or their survival and so the further and further you push the more and more people who who disagree with you will come out and be like what on earth is the purpose of this what are you doing and so why I think the future, I wouldn't say belongs to middle powers because great powers like the China and the US are always gonna be more important, but um, why the future is looking good for middle powers to me is because the great powers, particularly the US, but not entirely the US, I think Russia is a very obvious example of this right now, uh, are overextending themselves to a point that makes them weaker on the global stage, which means that in specific regional contexts, the middle power is actually equal or, or stronger, depending on what power it is. So yeah, no one's going to say India or Turkey or South Africa is going to just, you know, ha, I'm the new US. Like that is not going to happen. What it is going to say, though, in the specific regions around those countries with their immediate neighbors, yeah, guess who matters more? You know, the, whose opinion matters more to whatever faction is in charge of the government or rebelling against the government in Myanmar right now? Is it DC or is it New Delhi? Because it's New Delhi, <laughs> they're right there. That that is more important. If you are on the border with Turkey, Turkey is more important. If you uh, if you are involved in the Black Sea you know, when it comes to uh, grain shipments in Ukraine, even when it comes to dealing between Ukraine and Russia, Turkey is arguably as important as the U.S. is. The U.S. is only important in that war because of the amount of military hardware that we send. Um, but, but in general, like if, if you're Georgia, if you're, you know, Iraq, in the long run, Turkey's more important than the U.S. Uh, so you've got this, and the more the U.S. tries to hold on to this, 
and the thing is, there's a material basis for this power. This is not abstract. The, the U.S. position is based off of the post-war consensus. The post-war consensus in 1945 was built on, by far, being the strongest country in the world, having suffered the least of any of the major combatants in the world's most ruinous war, and ha having half of the global economy and over half of its industrial output. <laughs> you know, is that true anymore? It is objectively untrue. And yet the U.S. is trying to interfere in more countries than ever before with a smaller share of the economy, a way smaller share of the industrial output. And therefore, it's much easier for someone to just say, no, like you can't come in here. This is my neighborhood. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, try to you know make a global empire to fight back against you i mean they uh, plenty of people would want to but they can't uh and so what we're looking at we're looking at a return to multipolarity because more of the it's not just china that has risen compared to us it's everyone everyone has risen compared to well everyone except for like <laughs> has been old european countries that still make their powers like france and the uk but um in general like everyone is getting stronger compared to the united states and so it's just a reality. Like eventually someone's gonna notice this. And my fear is that people in DC, so into this worldview, this hegemonist democratist worldview that they have, they'll be the last to see it. And then one yeah. day something is gonna be a whoops and it's gonna be, oh, oh shit. Like did, did, <laughs> did we just get like smacked out of a region by a tiny country we never paid attention before and and it's it's like i just want them to be aware of this danger and to plan accordingly so to have a more sane worldview it doesn't mean that the u.s gives up being a world power in fact i think we have a completely unparalleled and a completely like envious location like we have the best combination of location and resources i think all we need is to have a strong navy really and we have a strong navy and certain key defensive alliance partnerships and i think we have it we have everything that we need and we we maintain the the, the one really good thing about the u.s empire is like freedom of the seas and like this kind of open maritime travel i think like yeah we need our navy for that and just deterrence against china because it's the only country that could reasonably threaten us on a one-to-one -one. but like we don't need any of this other stuff. We don't need all these bases everywhere. We don't need these endlessly expanding permanent alliances. It's it's pointless. And the only way it can be justified is with this like messianic worldview that's like, ah, but like if we're not there, someone else is there and they'll be doing bad things. And don't you want to do the good things? And I'm like, well, actually, the first thing about geopolitics is survival. And this is something that the middle powers understand because they're less complacent because they're they're less used to having everything handed to them and being treated with deference so they actually kind of like fight for what they want and they're much more clever about it because they know that they have to punch upwards and so you're going to just see the inevitable reality of these countries being able to stand up more and more to the u.s and to china i would add and it's really important to see that this isn't a new cold war it's a return to how the world normally is which is there's a lot of different countries and uh, quite a fair of them are strong and they have to figure out a way to live with each other or else in the nuclear age, we won't be living very long. And so it's, that is modus vivendi. It is an actual question of survival. It's a question of survival and, and knowing your limits and also knowing that you will be stronger if you don't test your limits too much. And in this way, I kind of almost want to bring up another John Gray book, because uh, he also wrote this book called The Two Faces of Liberalism, where he compares this weird messianic liberalism that would eventually become neoliberalism, neoconservatism, and democratism. And he compares it with the 
alternative liberalism that, that used to exist and got kind of sideswept, which was the liberalism of plurality. It wasn't just international plurality between different systems of governments. It was an internal domestic plurality of understanding that we have a baseline, preferably minimalist. It's like a minimalist Hobbesianism, a baseline of loyalty to, to a certain authority of what we agree as a country. Then we really can leave the, each other alone. And, you know, I, I would say that one, also another thing I would add to this is that one could defend the idea of a modus vivendi as an idea one could theoretically be fanatical about, right? You could say, in the sense that perhaps in a, a comparison to more the work you do, you could say that like a monoculture is bad, right? You could be really strong into like crop rotation and like having different things rather than just one thing, right? Because you want to avoid the Irish potato famine. You want you want to avoid everything failing all at once. Well, yeah. why not have the same view both domestically and internationally when it comes to how to live, when it comes to how to govern? Why not have the view that we can learn from each other more effectively if we accept that we're different, but that we need to figure out how to get along? I mean, why not be fanatical about that too? Why not really? I mean, that's kind of like the Agile magazine, which I write for, which my friend uh, and colleague Artem Moini founded. Agile magazine is kind of, in a way, he probably wouldn't put it this way, but it's kind of about this. Uh, so, like in, in Agile, we're like trying to figure out like not what's the view we should all have, all of us that are critical of, of you know, the current uh, thing, or you know, to put it in very John Oliver terms, it's the current year. Like, well, what, about, what about all those that are critical of that? Like, the point is to say we shouldn't have one. Like, we should be as strong in defense of ideological diversity as, as the people that we argue with who want to do away with it. We should right. say, no, we're really willing to go to town on plurality. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, why not, right? I mean, to me, that's like, and I think that that's, and that's a great point if we want to wrap on that point, because uh, I think that will resonate strongly with a lot of people in the Doomer optimism sphere. Because There are fans of like the political philosophy of distributism and things. I definitely believe, I mean, and I think there's ecological basis for this and social and cultural basis. The idea, like you're saying, like, let's try lots of different experiments. Let's see what works. Like, don't try to make every, yeah, don't try to make everything into a monoculture. And to me, a lot, a lot of the, you know, the anti-globalization and sustainable agriculture movement and like, and uh, the parts of that movement that recognize like indigenous cultures and indigenous agriculture practices around the world, that's the basis for that argument is like, you know, we live in such a, a complicated, highly textured reality that the idea of that one approach, like that's really just an insane idea to start with. And that we need to be responsive to the texture of local differences and not yeah. not wipe them out is very much like an Aldo Leopold ecology, you know, way of thinking. You know, yeah. I, that's 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 my theology. You know, that's definitely my religion yeah. about this. And so that's why I'm like, you know, oh, if they're doing things in Iran that I don't agree with, well, that's Iran. Let them do their thing. You know, like we yeah. don't need to remake them in our image. I went to grad. It doesn't mean that they'll always do that. You know, they, they they might change. They might realize like, oh, we have to. This is dumb. We should change it. But but trying to force them to change it externally, if anything, sabotages that. It makes it more likely they'll say, oh, that's a foreign plot. Why would we ever change? So I guess I guess maybe the hopefulness is that like you know, there's not much we really can do, but like this the the sort of hegemonic theology of democratism or neoliberalism or what you want to call it, it's naturally going to run its course. It's going to overextend itself 
you know, already we're seeing like resource depletion and environmental constraints on the expansion of a lot. Of, I mean, to me, climate change is a symptom of the overextension of a particular form of political economy and its resource dependence, you know, and yeah. that's showing you that yeah. it's awesome. I worked for a few years on ecological footprint analysis, where we look at many dimensions of biocapacity of the planet and to the extent that the human economy is overusing different these different dimensions. And yeah, that's the message is that we've sort of outstrip the capacity of the planet to provide on an ongoing sustainable basis for a lot of these things. So we're going to face resource constraints and, and, and that sort of thing. So in a sense, you know, the, the failure fixes itself in a way, you know, and I guess like a lot of my concern is, you know, uh, like you were saying the, you know, people in the DC bubble that are adherents of this consensus are not, probably not just going to wake up one day and go, oh, actually, this is all kind of futile. Let's just stop. You know, it's probably going to cause a lot of collateral damage as it disintegrates. Yeah, and they'll probably be in denial that it's disintegrating. And as we've already seen, particularly since the 2016 election, they will blame literally anyone but themselves. They, yeah. they will say, oh, it's not our fault. And then we just mindlessly, it's, it's all the, it's everyone else. It's everyone else undermining us because they all hate us and they're bigots. I mean, it's like, okay. Right. So, yeah. So I guess like, I guess that, that kind of answers my question was like, I was kind of pitting you in the realism and restraint school, you know, knocking on the door of these ideologues and trying to tell them to change their thinking. But probably that's not really your approach it's more like you're there waiting in the wings with sets of ideas and lessons learned from history so that as people defect from the consensus, there's something there's there. There are some ideas waiting that people could take up and start to work with. Yeah, I'm really hoping just to, to make the alternative case to people who might be on the fence or starting to ask questions. I, I really I, I completely write off. You know, the Thomas Friedman's, the Mary Caldors, uh, the Samantha Powers, uh, all, all that type of like I, I've never in a million years with that would I think that like I could ever have an impact in getting those people to walk their policy. They're too bought in. They're way too bought in. There's no going back now. Uh, the Bushes and the Clintons are what they are. Um, I'm just much more interested in people who are, shall we say, like more up and coming, who who have learned to be a bit more critical, even if they are establishment. And and they're like, yeah, we we really need some alternative ideas in this, and and that's and and maybe shopping around or you know the, the the kind of people who are skeptically minded, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't waste one iota trying to get you know <laughs> trying to get the Clinton Foundation to <laughs> buy into any of this, you know, it's just <laughs> this is not going to happen. So you you got to know when to when to pick your battles, really. Cool, man. Cool. Well, dude, I appreciate your time so much. This has definitely been a super fun conversation. If people want to see more of your work, where is a good place to catch up with you? And do you recommend some specific stuff for people to look at to get an idea about about your ideas and your work? Uh, yeah. Um, so I keep most of my publications on a publication side tab on my personal website, GeoTrickster. I do this because... Um, yeah, I publish in multiple places, so it's not, not always there. Uh, there is a collection of my work on the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy website. Um, uh, uh, under my name, I, I have a lot of publications of the national interest at Responsible Statecraft. Um, yeah, the rest of it can be found on, on, on GeoTrickster, uh, which is my personal blog. Um, and yeah, for, for now, that's that's probably the extent of stuff. One, one thing I would say, though, is 
because um, I've been dropping all these author names that, that are either very old, dead philosophers or, or, or niche things that, that are nonfiction that people might not want to read, uh, uh, an alternative. Uh, and I actually do have a post about this somewhere on my blog from a few years ago. I'm sure you can find it if you look for the author's name plus my blog title. So Jack Vance, Geo Trickster. But people should read Jack Vance. He's a, he was a science fiction author in the mid to late 20th century. And his idea of, of humanity in space is very, very different from how most science fiction authors depict it. And it kind of fits the themes of this conversation. So he, he, he kind of saw a world where people went into space and uh, rather than form like a utopian United Federation of Planets or become some kind of like dismal eternal battleground of everyone constantly fighting each other, um, uh, like it is in Battletech, which is another one of my favorite sci-fi franchises. Um, <laughs> uh, Jack Vance saw actually, his his worldview was that everyone, every weird sub-community would eventually find their own planet and all the planets would be kind of self-contained and they would just gradually, both in terms of biological evolution and in terms of culture, just diverge from each other and create ever stranger and more elaborate. And he was he was meant to kind of take the piss out of people, so it's not uh, presented in this like super positive way. But it's a really interesting worldview of like the modus vivendi in space, if you will. And, and I think he's an author that really should be looked at to get the kind of uh, uh, gist of this argument, which is not an argument of ideals. It's not an argument that solve problems. Jack Vance's stories are full of all kinds of uh, horrible things. But um, in the end, they exist in this kind of realm where uh, diversity of human culture is actually its greatest strength. And, and the ability to travel between planets is, is made cool by the fact that every planet is different from each other and yet is open to having people visit, you know, <laughs> and whatnot. So uh, th that's another random thing that I haven't mentioned before that I think is worth mentioning on this particular topic. Uh, the other thing before we wrap I'd like to bring up is that the last time I went on this podcast, I, of course, knowing where you were from, I, I wore my Mothman shirt, uh, <laughs> knowing that you were from West Virginia. Uh, on that same trip, I, I, I bought a, a wall hanging, and I, I've, I've now brought this out. This is my talk about localization. I have terrible glare, I'm sorry, because where my window is. But this is my uh, Cryptids of West Virginia wall hanging. Oh. <laughs> it's a map of West Virginia with all the various mythological creatures that are reported to live there in their rough locations. <laughs> Man, I got to get one of those. That looks really cool. Yeah, I believe I bought that one at the Mothman Museum. So, yeah. <laughs> Next time I go home, I'm taking a side trip to Point Pleasant, and I'm going to go check that out. Yeah, absolutely. I figure it would be thematically keeping with my prior uh, appearance if I if I brought in another thing from that <laughs> from that trip. No, I I super appreciate that. That was such a I I, I remember that it was, it was such a fun memory that you busted out the Mothman T-shirt today. You've got Guns and Roses, dude. You're batting a thousand on cool T-shirts on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe next time we can talk about like what, what sociological cultural role cryptids play in, in localism, right? Because that is actually a topic that interests me. <laughs> That's a very good topic. Okay, well, we'll definitely come back and we'll revisit that the next time we have Chris Monon. But thank you, Chris. Take care and we'll catch up with you down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you later.